0: Welcome to Emil Franzi's Voices of the West, dedicated to the principle that America was better off when our TV shows featured cowboys instead of lawyers.
1: Well, hello everybody, Harry Alexander and Bunker de France and Todd yep. Roberts here on Emil Franzi's of Voices of the West. What did we do now that the sirens are coming? <laughs> sirens? Well, I got sirens, you got sirens there, I got sirens here. No, no, that's what we're hearing is your sirens. Yeah, mask He's coming to get him. Mask violations. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're you're allowed. You, you have to wear a mask, but you're allowed to wear a string bikini. A string bikini.
1: Anyway, welcome to Emil Franzi's Voices of the West. It is uh, February, boy, oh boy, the year is going by ah, awfully quick. Five
3: times when you're having fun. Yeah,
1: right. Um, and uh, today's program is uh, going to be some history. We're going to talk about the Butterfield uh, Stage Route and uh, all their shipping and whatnot, and the we may, yeah, it. and may even get into some Wells Fargo there. Our guest is uh, from Syracuse, New York, is Gerald T. Anhert. He is a noted historian on uh, the Butterfield Route, as well as w- what what is it, Gerald? The, uh, the National Trails Association.
4: Oh yeah, I'm a member of the um, Oregon California Trails Association and their Southern Trails chapter. Uh, They sponsor many of our uh, historic trails, and uh, this is a big interest to them too because it dovetails with well, what else but immigrants?
3: Right. Yes. Well, you know we've got a couple of obituaries. Yeah, let's get to let's do do some some
1: the house cleaning here first. First of all, uh, I'll let you talk
3: about Marty, and then I'll do the other two.
1: Uh, We lost a, a good friend of ours. He was a good friend to the Empire Ranch Foundation and to the Empire Ranch, Marty. Um, he was a cowboy. Real cowboy. Real cowboy. He was a uh, retired uh, Air Force uh, pilot. He flew uh, transports, and nothing wrong with that, get to fly. Yeah, And, uh, and he was a, a crack-up, a hoot, and I'm he glad loved, he was in my life.
3: He loved Western movies. Oh, we, yeah. we, I, I love Marty because we didn't always agree. And that's when it gets fun when you yeah. start talking about a movie and you don't agree. He'd get mad at me. Oh, yeah. he'd get mad.
1: Mar- Marty uh, played Santa Claus one year at the uh, Empire Cowboy Center, uh, <laughs> sitting
3: a great out job. bib overalls and sitting <laughs> on the stump, and the kids loved him.
1: And Kathy, uh, his lady, his we we
3: our, are so sorry
1: to hear. Our so condolences
3: here. go out to Big him time. and their families yep. as well. Yep. Now I've got a couple of these are these are more in line with the uh, movie industry and stuff. We lost uh, this past week: Hal Holbrook and Christopher Plummer. Now, a lot of folks might say, well, Hal Holbrook, what's he doing on a Cowboy show? But we forget that he did Mark Twain Tonight, which is one of the greatest pieces of Americana that was ever done. Over 2,000 performances on stage. Yeah. One a Tony, I believe. Yep. Uh, won an Emmy for yep. the TV. Yep. Uh, he also did Sandberg's Lincoln in 1976 mm-hmm. on TV. And he did Lincoln two more times, uh, in the North and the South and then he did uh, the great white hope uh, christopher plummer his his record in westerns is really just one maybe one and a half but he did a, a film called winds across the everglades in 1958 which like i was telling harry earlier tonight uh today that this is this is a, this was so good and so historical that uh, last week we talked about news of the world and right. i think that's its category is historical western, mm-hmm. and winds across the everglades definitely fits that it could be it's the kind of thing you could see on masterpiece theater and he also did Royal Hunt of the Sun, which was about the Spaniards invading peru and but we lost both of these gentlemen who were fine actors and in fact uh, Plummer was working right up till he died at like ninety four so Yes, yeah. that takes care of that, and now we now we can bury the
1: Butterfield. All right, let's uh, get talking about the stagecoach. Six up, four up. <laughs> mules, <laughs> there, buggies, jewelry yeah, wagons. How did how did uh, Gerald explain how uh, John Butterfield got into this business?
4: Well, he got into this business. He was born in eighteen o one in in up in uh, the Helderbergs in New York, and by uh, a. Young teenager, he actually started working for uh, a fellow named Parker in Albany, New York, on a stage line. And, and that really spurred his interest, and in he decided that was for him. Uh, by 1820 or 1819, he wound up in Utica, New York. And from then, for the next 37 years till he got the Overland Mail contract, he had moved up to uh, the point by 1857 that 40 of his stages were coming and going from Utica. Every day. See, that's right in the center of New York State. So he had uh, uh, stages, go, uh, stage coaches going all over the place, connecting uh, everything in New York State.
3: Wow. Well, you know, he kind of reminds me of a way of, like, Amazon and, and those guys. <laughs> he was buying oh, yeah. up the stage lines in the area. He was building empire.
1: And what we have to remember here is th- this is this is before the American Civil War or yeah. War of Northern Aggression, the Unpleasantness, uh, whatever you want to call it. Uh, this all happened before that time, and uh, th- and there were no trains either. The, the trains were just like little lines well, of what trains there may have been.
3: You know, and one of the things, too, I hope that we bring out is the fact that, you know, he's so identified with the Overland Stage, but he had steamboats on Ontario. Uh, he had the first uh, horse-drawn street railway system. And the first local steam railroad in, uh, in, uh, what was it New York somewhere
4: like that? Yeah. Yeah, and his home well, is that's pretty good. I'm glad you know that stuff. That's uh, <laughs> I was about to say that. You said it for me. Well, <laughs> say it again. His, when,
1: his, that way, where it makes sense. His home is uh, pretty close to where you are, right? Is that right, John? Oh yeah.
4: Well, see, I'm I'm sitting in Syracuse, New York. I'm right in the center of it all. Now, his home was only 50 miles from here, Utica, New York. Okay. And you know, you know it's a. Really, many of the Old West pioneers are right from upstate New York. Yeah. As a matter of fact, William Fargo was born only 10 miles from where I'm sitting.
3: <laughs> yeah. Wow. You know, that, 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 that's one of the things that gets me. Upstate New York is still western. They have ranches up there. A good cowboy buddy of mine came from that country up there that was just as good a can you'd ever find. And everybody thinks everybody's from New York and they're
1: the Bowery Boys. Well, that's because of New York City.
4: Yeah, yeah, I have to get that all the time with my license plates. But, you know, the uh, the main industry in New York State is agriculture. It's farms in the largest designated wilderness area in the lower 48 outside of Alaska. is right here in New York State. And I'm a child of the bush. That's where I'm from.
3: Well, you sound bushy.
4: <laughs> That's where I'm staying, too. I'm just a boy. Stay in the bush.
1: All right, so, so the establishment of the Butterfield Line, I'm looking at a map here uh this was let's see 2600 2860 mile butterfield mail line first 160 miles from saint louis was by train and the stage traveled 2700 miles from tipton missouri to san francisco and then they had a bifurcated section from memphis and joined the main trail at fort smith arkansas man oh man oh man that's a hell of a ride in it a stagecoach. Took the words right out of my mouth. In a stagecoach that uh, roads were like non-existent.
3: And how many miles between stations, and was it uniform from one end of the route to the other?
4: All right, I'll tell you a little bit about that, and expand on what he said, and give you that data. Now, like he said, it came out of uh, Tipton, Missouri. The trail started after the train dropped the mail off. There, they got on a stagecoach, the classic Concord. I call them Rolls Royces. <laughs> and uh, they went to Fort Smith, Arkansas. There's where the frontier started. See, it was semi-settled all through that area, and trails were already established up to Fort Smith.
1: And this is, 18, and then in ni- this the is next 1857. Miles, this Fort, is
4: 1857. Twenty miles from Fort Smith to St. uh to Los <laughs> Angeles. That was the frontier. Now that, that was the real frontier part of the trail. That's where they used the stage wagon, not the uh, not stage coaches, because mm-hmm. it was too rough. And then from Los Angeles on up to. Uh, uh, San Francisco, that was semi-settled also, so they went back uh, and they switched to the big old Concords, the Rolls Royces. But the average, uh, they had about 175 stations, 139 at the beginning, but they uh, built some as they went along uh, service. And there were about 15 in Arizona, for instance, there were 15 and a half miles apart.
1: That was about the, the length of time the horses or mules could last, is that right?
4: Well, um, they could last longer, but this was all about speed. I see. You know, it's kind of like Pony Express, right? They switch horses kind of fast because they didn't want to tire them out. They could have gone farther.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: <laughs> but this was all about speed. Uh, John Butterfield was an absolute master organizer. Mm-hmm. He knew he had to have that many stations to get the job done. That's a big... and, and they used mules, mostly, as you know, and they, they um, were half-broken, and boy, did they cause problems.
3: Wow. Now, let me ask you this. The, the Yuma to Tucson uh, segment, they used a lot of buckboards on that, didn't they? No, they With used the a stage
4: wagon.
1: Oh, okay. So uh, what's the difference between a stage wagon and a stagecoach?
4: Oh, here we go. That's a darn good question. It's one of the big controversies. Uh, now, the stagecoach is a, uh, as you know, they used a thorough brace, that the, the uh, leather cradle that um, the stage sat on, and that didn't cause them <laughs> a lot of seasicknesses, you know. Mm. Uh, but the stagecoaches had a rounded bottom that sat directly on that leather cradle, and it had doors and windows. Now, a stage wagon was much simpler, about two-thirds of size and weight. It had open sides, no doors, no and no windows. And uh, the top, uh, and its bottom was flat. They still use the same undercarriage as a stagecoach, but there was this transition iron bracket that made the transition to the flat bottom of the stage wagon. Hmm. Now, I don't use the term mud wagon. Uh, That's too broad of a term, and it really is kind of fascinating how they came up because of one model that was... um, Somebody in Maine back in 1830s wanted fenders put on a stage wagon, so the customers didn't get mud all over them. And uh, see, uh, Abbott Downing would never use that name in their literature, by the way. Hmm. Uh, I don't use that term. I like to be more specific.
3: Yeah. That, that kind of also came out of the movies later on, didn't
4: it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of that. I like to be more specific. Oh, yeah. Now, he ordered only a uh, uh, – there's a lot of misinformation about the stages, Um, It started out with uh, the Conklings. I don't know if you uh, have heard of them. They were the ones who rode along the trail from 1929 to 1933 and wrote these three huge volumes put out by Arthur Clark Company. Now, they did the pioneering effort for for what we have now. There was a lot of misinformation because they took the word of old timers. And I found out when I was (laughs) writing for the New York Times that's kind of problematic because of how what morphs in the brain of an old man, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, so, but their pioneering effort is what we work off of, uh, you know. And they're the ones that perpetuated uh, the, that John Gould made them out of um, Albany, New York. Now, like I said, they, they did the best that they could at the time, but it wasn't. I came up with primary source references that show that he ordered a 100 stages. From J.S. and E.A. Abbott Company, Concord, New Hampshire. That was the n- They changed their name, you know, mm-hmm. quite regularly. <laughs> but anyway, 34 were the classic, uh, big male stagecoaches that we call the Concord stagecoach. And he ordered 66 stage wagons. And I'm quite sure from the, uh, ads that they put out at the time in 1850s that it was the Australian model that he had modified. Now, one of the unique features that identifies the Butterfield Stage Wagon is the conductor and uh, driver's seat was on the same level as the passengers. All Mm -hmm. the others had these elevated seats so you could see better over the horses
1: and the mules. Interesting,
4: interesting. Yep. Oh, I mean. And they were distributed along the trail at 1,920 miles. Those stage wagons, 66 of them, there was one at every 30 miles. In other words, there was a spare uh, stage wagon at every other station.
1: Now, this is in the days before the telegraph, too. Um, Correct. And so, I mean, was a lot of logistics to deal with in, oh, boy, in getting that ever. all taken care of. And that's a monumental task. Well, one All right, minute.
4: let me fill you in on that. You made a good point about being for a Civil War. Sometimes in my presentations, I say you got to look at it this way. There were three eras. Before the Civil War, the Civil War, and after the Civil War. <laughs> Before the Civil War was the old, old West. Then during the Civil War, there was this big dead spot. Then after that was the old, classic West. Now uh, The Butterfield Trail at 1920 miles, well, let's, let's talk about Arizona. It was 400 miles through Arizona, uh, that trail. There was only one organized settlement at the time of Butterfield, and that was Tucson, which and, goes back to the Spaniards. There was that, and, nothing else yeah, there. That and, there was wa- the and there wasn't
1: much about Tucson at that time either.
4: <laughs> Population 623, uh-huh. uh, and about uh, two-thirds of them were de facto Americans uh, of Mexican descent yep. because of the Gadsden Purchase yep. only four years before. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me so run. Was let me run.
3: Let me run through some stations there just just to kind of right. set the scene here. you've got uh, Dragoon station, Senca station, tucson station uh, point of what is it point of Mountain station, Picacho Peach Station, Blue water Station, and Oneida Station. That's you know that that for people living here that gives you an idea really of of how far your drive is. It's like a, in a car or something. It's like a fifteen minute
4: drive. Hmm. Yeah, correct, correct. Yeah, there are twenty six stations in Arizona. You'll notice those names. Now this was truly a New York State line. Uh, it was uh, organized by uh, New York Staters and the most of the stage coach drivers were from upstate New York, and five of the state stations in Arizona have New York state names for that reason.
1: Interesting.
3: And family names to Butterfield.
4: Well, well um, no, there's no... See, Butterfield never uses name on anything. This is one of the big fallacies. I, I thought, had, well, I thought one interesting of
3: niece or daughters or something had had a station named
4: after her. Well, that, that's possible in the other states. Yeah, uh, My oh. specialty has been Arizona. I oh. do have a Fair knowledge of the, uh, the other states it went through. But th- that may very well be in some of the other, other uh, uh, states. But th- as far as I can see, there were none in uh, Arizona. Now, there's two very important stage stations in Arizona, one called Stanwix and the other one Kenyon's. Now, this is pretty cool. Here's what happened. In January of 1858, a fellow named Marcus L. Kenyon from Rome, New York, he was a, a colleague of Butterfield's, and John Butterfield, Jr. took a ship all the way over to San Francisco, and they jumped on a couple of mules, and by muleback, 40 miles a day, they rode along the Southern Overland Corridor, as I call it, selecting the route of the trail through there, which includes Arizona, and the station sites. Now, Canyon State Station in western Arizona, he named after himself. And 40 miles from there, he named Stanwix, because in Rome, New York, he owned Stanwix Hall Hotel. Mm.
3: That's what I was thinking of. Mm. It was him, not not Mr. Butterfield. All right,
1: we're going to do All our right. first uh, commercial break here. We're talking stagecoaches with Gerald T. Onert. He's in Syracuse. Harry Alexander with you and Bunker de France and Todd Roberts. This is Emil Franzi's Voices of the West. We're going to be back with much more right after these very, very important messages. Do, do not run away, because if you do, you're going to miss it. When looking for a property management company, here are some things you should consider. How long has the company been in business? What types of properties can they manage for you? And does the company give back to the community? Well, your search is over. First, contact the Polash Management Company today at polashmanagement.com and ask about the complete package or call 520-795-2100. That's 520-795-2100. The Polash Management Company. Property managers you can trust.
5: Can you even imagine switching back to pen and paper to run your business? Every year we become more and more dependent upon our technology. If your network is not set up properly, you're just one click or one email away from losing data critical to your operation. Arizona Computer Guru offers a host of services to prevent and protect you from disaster. From online back. Backup services to email filtering to fully managed network services, Arizona Computer Guru is here to keep your network secure, your data safe, and your budget in the black. To schedule your free consultation, call 304-8300.
6: Hi everyone, it's Susan McRae and welcome to Chaparral Roundup. As you know, I've postponed the March event to October 1st, 2nd and 3rd so we can all relax, have a great time with great dinners, a great lunch at the White Stallion Ranch, Q&A panels, screenings of a couple of our favorite High Chaparral shows, the documentary of Kent McCrae so we can honor him during his favorite reunion. And we have a great silent auction to benefit the Robert F. Hoy and Kiva Hoy Charity at the Tucson Medical Center. If you're already registered for March, you're automatically registered for October. But if you're not, you better register by September 17th. I look forward to seeing you all, and so does Don, with his Confessions of an Acting Cowboy. You'll have fun. See you in October for the Chaparral Roundup at Lodge on the Desert in Tucson, Arizona. Stranger,
5: you just yucked yourself into a hole in the head. This is the Voices of the West.
1: Welcome back to Emil Franzi's Voices of the West. Harry Alexander, Bunker de France, Todd Roberts... And we got another one in the studio. David Layton, freelance writer, who uh, writes for the Arizona Daily Star, and anybody else that'll hire. Right, and he also. Uh, I have no standards. Is okay. That's the point. Has no standards. <laughs> and our guest Gerald T. Onhurt uh, from Syracuse. And uh, Gerald, the reason we're bringing David into this is because he walked into the studio carrying Seconds a copy of your book. Yes, a very rare
2: book. That's the only reason they invited me on the show is because I had a copy of your He had to show book. me the book right. before I let him in the door. <laughs> the
4: 2011 book, is, is it?
2: Yeah, it's the uh, re- well, Retracing the Butterfield Overland Trail through Arizona. Oh, air that's or
4: the 1973
2: book. Oh, yeah, okay. It's oh. the rare one. It's the old one. I guess I
4: got, oh, I yeah, guess yeah. I got I the, the original here. I a buck or two now. <laughs> Hang on but to I'll, it. I'll tell you so, something about that. Gerald? Now, that book was nothing more than an atlas. Mm. My uh, book in 2011 was much more comprehensive. Now, my first book, uh, if you try to find those stage stations, you're not going to even come close. Well, you're not going to come close anyway because they're all gone, completely uh, obliterated. But uh, that was based on the Conkling's work from 1929 and 1930. Now, we didn't have the Internet back then. True. And my 2011 book is much more comprehensive than that book. I'm surprised you got that, that one. That's a rare book, though. Yeah,
2: I, I've had it for a while, actually, in my library. So I just, when I uh, heard you're going to be on the show, I was like, hey, I'll bring it in just uh, for the, for yeah, the you know, yeah. Todd, amusement right. of it. Yeah,
1: Todd, it. Todd, you had a question? Well, I have two questions. Uh, Gerald,
2: for those in our audience who don't know how to, shall I say, compare things, Um, Are you talking about me? (laughs) I think he is, actually. Bunker, I have not started to talk about you yet, but I will. I promise you. He's in flight. Hang in there. Be patient, Bunker. Be patient. Um, So in today's world, in driving a car, you're in a bus or whatever, it has suspension. So what comparatively that someone could ride in today would be the suspension and the rough ride of what the stagecoach or the buckboard wagon or the stage wagon was back then In what back- would someone have to get on to experience what that's like unless they got onto a real stagecoach which my friend's father makes them and he says the one thing i always do is i make sure i have great suspension because when i sell it when i first started selling them to people they all complained about the rough ride so even there they don't have the rough ride where would you yeah, what yeah. comparatively will you well, find that ride the in the back of an old pickup
4: <laughs> yeah. yeah you know, along a bumpy uh, road in arizona I'm sure i've sure been on a lot of those but you know it kind of brought to mind believe it or not a um... I lived almost 18 years in Europe, three years in the Army and 15 years a civilian. But in Spain, they have a, a narrow-gauge railroad up in the mountains, and boy, does that thing rock back and forth.
2: <laughs> okay, okay. So that reminds me, it sounds kind of like the uh, the old a- antique train in Mexico down the Copper Canyon, which right. rattles, right. uh, right. it sounds like it's rattling and coming apart and feels like it's coming apart.
4: Like a TV
2: in a boxcar. Um, mm-hmm.
4: <laughs> The thing about that so, throw brace was it didn't just rock uh, uh, to and fro, it was also sideways. It, it went all which ways.
2: Uh, uh-huh. Okay. To say nothing My other question for you, Gerald, you know is <laughs> for years here in Hollywood, um, there's a community called Outpost uh, Drive and Outpost Circle. It was developed in the 20s um, by a movie producer who thought he could make a lot of money by buying up this land and, and and making sure that the homes were all built the exact same style of Spanish colonial. And then he could sell them to all the stars he knew and all the film executives. It's a very posh area. It's still there. But one of the homes at the base of Outpost, where it meets Franklin, which is uh, about two blocks north of Hollywood Boulevard... Is, um, is where Outpost comes down or starts, depending on which way you look at it, there at Franklin. And for years I've been told that that was a uh, stage stop. That you came over the hill or you were going north over the hill into the valley on farther north into California. And I wanted to know if you knew anything about it. Was, a, was it a Butterfield or a Wells Fargo or anything you might know?
4: Well, over in California, I've done a little bit of work for uh, Frank Norris of the National Park Service over in that area. He had a few questions, but I'm not overly familiar with I'm uh, more up in the Francisco Canyon, I think they call it, uh, Uh area. I'm a little bit familiar with, but that's about it.
3: Uh, Gerald, uh, tell us about the San Diego-San Antonio mail line and, and how the part it played in helping Butterfield.
4: Yeah, there's a good one for you. Now, that was, um, you had two different things going on here, two different types of administration. One was efficiency, and the other one was frontier know-how, and that was the jackass mail, the San Antonio to San Diego mail line. Now, they, they actually so one newspaper column said it went from nowhere to nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> now, they had a heck of a problem. They, they only had three weeks to organize it, you know, which was crazy. They didn't even use stages. They used old broken-down wagons. The only thing they had where they said that was decent was an old Army ambulance. <laughs> and uh, uh, they complained like heck. Uh, by the time they got to Tucson, they, um, they had to buy their own mule sometimes and go on to San Diego. The passengers were complaining. Now, the mail didn't go along with the stage most times. They had to take it on mule back separately because they couldn't count on those stages. They stopped to sleep. Now, Butterfield didn't do that. You had to travel 24 hours a day on those stages.
6: Mm-hmm. You did
4: not stop to sleep, and that was a, another problem that the passengers had. But they only made 42 trips total, and they ran at the same time as Butterfield, by the way. There's a lot of mythology about that. You know, uh, the, Butterfield bought them out. They did not. What happened was their mail contract was canceled between El Paso and Fort Yuma because they couldn't duplicate Contracts with the government. So there's, boy, I'll tell you, there's a colorful story behind them. There, they had frontiers uh, uh, like Skillman. Oh, he was something else out of Texas. That guy was uh, quite a frontiersman. And uh, but Butterfield was completely different. His was organized, you know, efficiency, efficiency. You know, when they pulled into a uh, stage station, Butterfield, it was like making a NASCAR pit stop. Hmm. (laughs) You know, they had 20 minutes, and if somebody went behind a cactus to do their business and uh, they weren't on that stage, they had to wait for the next stage a couple days later.
1: So what does it cost to travel uh let's just do the whole cross-country thing from uh what the time they'd get off of the train and and, and embark on the stagecoach to go right. to san francisco
4: now they varied at first they started out at 200 bucks but then they dropped it to 150 uh and then in about mid 59 1859 around 100 they, they bounced around it started out at 200 bucks now that's a heck of a lot of money yeah it is. it was generally 10 cents a mile if you want to look at it that way,
3: and in today's dollar, that would be
1: dollars per mile. Yeah, no kidding.
4: Oh boy, it was a well. It, uh, see, this was a special thing. There was a, this was the first uh, real stagecoach line across the U.S. that connected east to the west. It Was mm-hmm. a very special thing. This was big news. It hit the news. That's why Waterman Ormsby uh, with the New York Herald was on the first stage.
1: That's who uh, I was thinking out of. of
3: yeah. Now let me ask you that's this. That's a great story. Uh, when it came to making money off of it, uh, which was paying him more, for the passengers or for the mail and freight? Right. Ah,
4: first of all, he didn't make any money.
3: Wow. That's
1: what I thought.
4: That line, in the end, cost $3.5 million.
1: Is that in yesterday's dollars?
4: Their dollars, wow. back then dollars. Wow. <laughs> $3.5 wow. bucks. I mean, he was getting uh, 600000 a year, and of course there was uh, making... You know, subsidized by getting some off a of passenger. Passengers secondary. You look at the the his regulations. I mean, the passengers didn't count. The, the mail ha- came first. You know. Yeah. So <laughs> now, he made a few bucks off. He crammed them in. That was a tough thing. Nine where there should be six, and boy, did they have problems. So I don't know co- if you ever heard about a guy named Pompelli in 1860. It was on the stage going to Tucson. He was an engineer heading to the Santa Rita mines. I mean he was hallucinating. He was so bad trying to sleep on those stages. So bad that when he got to Tucson, he found the first little Adobe Hovel and got in the door and just hit the floor. And about eight hours later he was woke up by gunshots because he was in a, a gambling hall. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so if the if the price of a ticket was uh, ten cents a mile like that, how how did that aid immigrant travel to settle the west because that's a lot of money on
4: one of the keys here you know everything was about uh uniting the east with the west Mm -hmm. and this was a preliminary for for getting more immigrants out of there because they knew that butterfield would organize that trail and make it easier for them with this is the key regular spaced water sources. When he started in 1858, the newspaper accounts, as many of them, you see that new wagon trains were starting out. Immigration picked up significantly because of Butterfield. There were many reports of this. Because, you see, it wasn't just a mail route. Everything had a a dual or triple purpose, even as a preliminary for the railroad.
1: All right, we're going to do another break here. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the myths of Hollywood that Hollywood has uh, we are? laid upon us about stagecoaches.
3: Yes we, we are. are.
1: Yes we yeah, are. Yeah we are.
3: Well, Where have you surprised. been?
2: Hey,
1: <laughs> just
2: just go along with it, okay? <laughs>
3: Seriously. No, I'm in
1: shock. Hey. We'll be back with much more of Amal Franzi's <laughs> Voices Bum of the West that's right after these very, very important messages. Do not run away. <laughs> When looking for a property management company, here are some things you should consider. How long has the company been in business? What types of properties can they manage for you? And does the company give back to the community? Well, your search is over. First, contact the Polash Management Company today at polashmanagement.com. And ask about the complete package or call 520-795-2100. That's 520-795-2100. The Polish Management Company.
5: Property managers you can trust. Can you even imagine switching back to pen and paper to run your business? Every year we become more and more dependent upon our technology. If your network is not set up properly, you're just one click or one email away from losing data critical to your operation. Arizona Computer Guru offers a host of services to prevent and protect you from disaster. From online Backup services to email filtering to fully managed network services, Arizona Computer Guru is here to keep your network secure, your data safe, and your budget in the black. To schedule your free consultation, call 304-8300.
6: Hi everyone, it's Susan McRae and welcome to Chaparral Roundup. As you know, I've postponed the March event to October 1st, 2nd and 3rd so we can all relax, have a great time with great dinners, a great lunch at the White Stallion Ranch, Q&A panels, screenings of a couple of our favorite High Chaparral shows, the documentary of Kent McRae, so we can honor him during his favorite reunion. And we have a great silent auction to benefit the Robert F. Hoy and Kiva Hoy Charity at the Tucson Medical Center. If you're already registered for March, you're automatically registered for October. But if you're not, you better register by September 17th. I look forward to seeing you all, and so does Don, with his Confessions of an Acting Cowboy. You'll have fun. See you in October for the Chaparral Roundup at Lodge on the Desert in Tucson, Arizona.
1: Stranger, you just yupped yourself into a hole in the
5: head. This is the Voices of the West.
1: We're back on Emil Franzi's Voices of the West. Harry Alexander, Bunker to France, Todd Roberts in Los Angeles. David Layton, freelance writer, is here also. Voices I don't of the want no w- hole in my <laughs> head. <laughs> Voice of the West is also brought to you by the White Stallion Ranch, yes. as well as Imus Wilkinson Investment. So uh, check and out we all also of also should
3: mention that we are
1: in the wonderful, beautiful Paul Ash Studio. That we are in wonderful, well, sort of wonderful Tucson. Yeah. Oh, uh, uh, Gerald? Our guest is Gerald T. Anhart. And we're talking about stagecoaches and uh, Butterfield Butterfield stagecoaches. So ask your question, then I want to get to the Hollywood myths.
3: Okay. Uh, Are you familiar with the Western Postal History Museum here in Tucson?
4: Yes, I am. Lisa, what was her name? I uh, did some work for her and straightened out some of the myths uh, for her.
2: Valerie Cattell.
4: uh, yeah, they have a new one there. The other one, her first name was Lisa.
2: Lisa, okay. Yeah, Lisa's actually a librarian over at uh, Pima Community College West Campus now, uh, oh, and yeah, okay. she asked
4: Lisa. me to help her out with some of the <laughs> straighten out some of the myths there.
2: Well, then you're familiar with the Cal
3: Peters uh, uh, paintings and murals there.
4: No, the ones I'm familiar with is Marjorie Reed, who was. Uh, who, who, uh, quite a famous painter in Arizona, did good stuff, but her stuff was more generic 1870s, uh, she represented it as Butterfield, and and they're not.
3: Well, they're they're located now over by the university, and uh-huh. it's a new. I guess it's a new location, but they've got some really beautiful stuff there. They, you know, they've got the. Uh, a buckboard mail attack, a jackass mail thing. Uh, uh-huh. Just yeah, very, very good. The Wickenburg Massacre. That had nothing to do with Butterfield, though, did it? No, it was 71.
4: Oh, yeah, that's after the Civil War. Right. Yeah. All right, so. Harold.
1: Go, go ahead, Todd.
2: Well, I had two questions more for Harold. Number one, Harold, I- I'm sure you watch films that have... Uh, stage hoaches in them and you pick them apart and you find holes up and down like Harry and Bunker and I do about other films about uh, other westerns with other subjects hats leather and horses and so on but is there a film that you exceptionally feel is very, as true as it, real as it can be to what the stagecoach was, such as, just let me throw it out, you, you give me the thumbs up or down, of the film Rawhide with Tyrone Power, or is there another film you like more?
4: You mean as far as uh, related to Butterfield?
2: Uh, stagecoach in general, but Butterfield... Or Wells Fargo. I mean, just the, the truism of it. Of the you know,
4: I kind of distinguish between Butterfield and, and reality. I, I can get into the uh, fiction of, of a good film. I'll tell you, <laughs> it's not about stage coaches, but one of my favorites, Good, Bad, and the Ugly, believe it or not. <laughs> now, I'll tell you, one, though, was the Hateful Eight. You know, that that stage there. Mm. Now, that was built by Doug Hanson, a Hanson Wheel and Wagon Works. I, I know him. He's a good feller. I gave a talk for him down in Tucson two years ago. Now, he makes uh, for Hollywood. Now, that was a darn good one. It was a, a perfect Concord replica stagecoach. Okay.
2: okay. What about the stage
4: My stagecoach My other
2: question is, do you have a, uh, you know, we know that, for instance, uh, Edward Boland and Gary Cooper rode stageco They rode shotgun on stagecoaches. Were there any more other people, celebrities? Didn't have to be actors. People that were famous that started out in the stagecoach world that went on to prominence. I, I don't know. It, to
4: me, it's um. I really can't pin it down, tell you the truth. There, there's so many that that I like, because I really get into movies as fiction, if you know what I mean. Yeah. There, there's an awful lot, lot that I like. I, I can't really pin down anything specifically.
2: No, I'm just saying, was there any stagecoach riders, shotgun riders, or stagecoach drivers that went on to prominence after they left the stagecoach world?
4: Oh, you mean as far as Butterfield? Mm-hmm. We yeah, didn't have that.
2: any stagecoach driver have or stagecoach rider.
4: They weren't carrying valuables, they weren't allowed to. They never got held up.
2: But Some I mean, did any of them go of into prominence in the world? Did any become tycoons or did any of them oh, become right. well-known actors? Well, Did any of them become well-known lawmen? Did any of them get
4: books oh, written? See, a them. lot of them went back to New York State or, or they transferred. Now, here's what happened. Uh, during the Civil War, March of uh, 1861, Butterfield was told to get the heck out of there fast because here comes Sibley's, Sibley's army, and they transferred everything that they could up to the Central Overland Trail. Now, uh there, Some of them did stay out west, like William, the famous William Buckley. He died in, in San Diego, even when he was from Watertown, New York. Now, uh, most of the rest uh, came back to upstate New York. They're buried in, in the uh, uh, cemeteries here. It's, it's as exciting as walking through, uh, <laughs> through Hill Cemetery up here in some of these. There's so many stage drivers there. Now, you got to remember, okay. this was before okay. the Civil War, and uh, there was this dead spot. Nothing really happened until a med... Uh, around '67, when sta- through stage lines started to come back on the Southern Overland Trail, so everything just kind of disappeared. You know, all the stage stations. There are no. There is only two or three. Uh, spots in Arizona. All the stations are gone. There's only one ruins of a Butterfield station. This was before the Civil War. That's a long time ago. You know, I'd like to say one more thing about this. You know, there are historical markers in Arizona, especially at Sears Point, that that need serious updating because they got Wells Fargo on them. <laughs> Wells Fargo never had anything to do with the administration of that line. Now, this was perpetuated in some uh, some. Uh, Books that came out in the late 60s, and that's where a lot of people referenced, but it was all deductive reasoning. Now, it's only because that you see William Fargo is one of the directors of the Overland Mail Company, but that's an individual. Right, That's all he was. This was a stockholding company. You know, so (laughs) and that's what it was. The directors were based on how many uh, shares of stock that they held.
1: So Wells Fargo never had an appearance in uh, the Arizona Territory.
4: Absolutely not. They never were a stage line in the Southern Overland Trail or anywhere else in Arizona with their own name on a transom rail. They did not come on the scene until 1867 on the Central Overland Trail for the first time. They were an express company. You see, oh. they, That's why they couldn't possibly help administer Butterfield's line. They had no stagecoach experience, right. none whatsoever.
6: Right. What's now, good- the
4: first time they had their name on a stage was up on the Central Overland Trail when he scraped off the name of the Pioneer Stage Line. And then they didn't see the railroad coming. In two years, they were out of business. They sold out <laughs> lock, lock and barrel.
3: Uh, Gerald, let's get back to the stations in Arizona for a second. Uh, sure. Vallecito, between uh, Tierra Blanca Mountains and the western edge of the Anza Borrego. Uh, a few years back, it was still standing. Is it still there yet?
4: Yeah, it's a National Historic Site.
3: Yeah. So it's so it, it, something that people could go visit this then.
4: Oh, that's a good one. It's a National Historic Site in California. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, now dear. the best one in Arizona. Hello? Yes. Oh, <laughs> okay. The best one in Arizona and the only one that's in ruins, only one that you can see and it's it's quite a dramatic scene is Dragoon Springs Stage Station over by Benson, Arizona in Cochise County. That's spectacular. That was the last of the 10 fortified stone stage stations. Uh, you can still see the entire outline of it. It's out in the boonies a little bit, up against the Cochise stronghold. You stop in the Benson at the visitor center. See my good friend there, uh, Bob Nielsen. He'll give you the directions to get to it. It's spectacular. It's the only ruins in Saratoga, or excuse me, in uh, Arizona that exists. Well, All the rest are gone.
3: Just across the line, over in New Mexico, uh, Shakespeare, which I think Harry went over there and took some video. No, I,
1: no, I wanted to go. I oh, haven't okay, been
3: there. but. Uh, Shakespeare right. still, still goes down.
4: I have to say this, that it's not a Butterfield station.
3: Oh, I didn't know that, because I know it was oh, a but
4: stage it, see, station. See, that's completely false. Shakespeare, Arizona, did not exist until the 1870s. It had nothing to do with the, the right. Southern Overland Trail.
3: Okay, that was just a later stage line. N-
4: yes, uh, Cairns, what's the name, Cairns? Tomlinson went through there in the 1870s. Uh, they, I know, they represented as Butterfield, but it is not a Butterfield station. The closest one to there was Barney's, and that was just uh, east of the present town of Lordsburg. The next mm-hmm. one west was Steins Peak, not the railroad. <laughs> that that's a little ghost town yes, down the road. Yeah, so three and a half miles north of there.
1: Yeah, I think that, isn't that pronounced Steins because the guy who founded it was named Steen.
4: You got it. You, very good. You've
1: got to watch her. Eat. <laughs> Stickler sometimes. you got it. He'll, um, stick, he'll sneak up on you, yeah. I'll tell you. So did, yeah, did yeah. the Indian tribes bother the stage uh, stages they were traversing across the territory?
4: Now, this is a very good thing I like to talk about because uh, I'm doing my third book, very comprehensive book now on the Butterfield Trail, and it's going to have a large section about the Pima Maricopa Indians. If it wasn't for them, I do not believe that... Butterfield would have survived, because south of Phoenix, where they are today, was an oasis of safety. Now, they had two chiefs, Antonio Azul and Juan Chiveria, his name was. He was what they called their war chief. Now, they were farmers, and uh, uh, Juan Chiveria said this, quote, The Maricopas had not yet learned the color of a white man's blood. They bragged about never killing one and always being friends to the white men. They furnished 100,000 pounds of wheat to Butterfield in the first year alone. Great. It, it, they even made uh, Antonio Azuel a first lieutenant in a unit uh, during the Civil War in, 19, in 1864. It, it, it was an oasis of safety for wagon trains going across the Arizona. It's going to be a fairly large section of my book, my new book because this has not been written about before, and I don't know why. Yeah. The, they were actually, the Apaches were afraid of them. Now, Butterfield was constantly lobbying Congress to have forts put in Arizona because of the Apache, but uh, they wouldn't do it. So he uh, uh, actually started as something called the Gila Rangers. This is not the Arizona Rangers. In 1860, the Gila Rangers, uh, uh, two... Uh, uh, with a lot of the Pima and, and uh, Maricopa Warriors and Jack Swilling, uh, the famous Jack Swilling, and uh, Jacob Snively were part of it, uh, and Butterfield funded it. But they were an oasis of safety. Now, this has not been brought up before. I don't know why people don't write about it, because they're a different Indian, believe me. Well, yeah.
1: because it's not sexy, and, and you can't. You can't make a movie about it.
4: They're so. not
3: brutal and vicious and bloodthirsty. That's why. The, well, I uh, tell you,
4: when I get through with it, it's going to be sexy.
1: <laughs> so, so the time taken between, let's say, I pick up the stage at the San Pedro River Stage Station, uh, just uh, north of Benson, and oh, um, you missed it because you you went
3: out behind for a second.
1: All right. Well, I'm going to <laughs> I'm going to Tucson. What's the what's my travel time going to be approximate? Oh,
4: let's see. Now they traveled. 120 miles a day. Wow. Five, uh, about five, four and a half to five miles an hour. So figure it out what the distance is.
1: Yeah, I'm a five year plan in high school, so <laughs> math was the reason. Yeah, so That's right. You know, you'd,
4: you'd get breakfast at one, you'd be at lunch in the other.
1: Probably. Gotcha. Okay.
6: Well, now,
4: you have to, here's one of the funny things. I always re, I, I like to read this. It's very short, it's only 11 sentences long. Go for one it. One of the biggest problems on those open side stages was falling asleep. They had to sleep on the stages, as I said, and they lose their hats. Now, here we are coming out of Maricopa Wells, coming down to Tucson in 1860. Now, this was from a correspondent. You know, I love this one because this guy was a good writer. Now, I'm going to read this to you. It's only 11 sentences long. It was night when we left the Maricopa, so we adjusted ourselves to sleep and were not disturbed until 2 in the morning. On arriving at the Picacho Mountains, when hell-roaring Jackson, as he was styled by common consent, discovered that he had lost his hat. And thereupon he began to utter a great multitude of newly invented and strange ejaculations with <laughs> frequent mention of sacred names but in forms not prescribed in the prayer books. These ejaculations he kept up for half an hour giving us an endless variety of them and making it a point of honor, never to use any one of them a second time.
1: <laughs> okay. Talk, uh, now, b- b- talk about the reporter who uh, was the, the oh, New, good New York Herald or the New York World uh, yeah. who that's traveled uh, along the line. Talk about that experience. I, I, I've seen the paper that he's written, and I know I've got it someplace, New but York I just can't find it.
4: Now... Yeah, that's a, that is one of our main references, one of our best references. Waterman L. Ormsby, uh, because this was such a huge event, he was on the first stage out of Tipton and, and rode the entire thing all the way to San Francisco. And, uh, uh his, uh, uh, writing about it, he gives, he gives a lot of detail and there's few things that we, that we can fault him for. There's some tremendous detail in there. And he talks about the problems with the wild mules. Uh, they have and the mustangs that they use. They were a constant problem with these stages. And at San Pedro River Stage Station, you ought to see that report. Hmm. Yeah, because they they'd have to blindfold those mules and back them in the harness. Everybody gets on the stage and they say everybody on. They whip that blindfold off and away those mules go. <laughs> it was it was one heck of a ride. Now Ormsby, uh, 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 like I said, he he wrote for the New York Herald. But if you want to get his book. It was putting out by the Huntington Library. Mm-hmm. You can pick them up on eBay for mm-hmm. ten bucks. Yeah. Whole thing. Yeah, yeah. I've got,
1: I've, got, I've
4: got it's a, one I of like, the best written books and references we have. I have
1: an electronic copy someplace. Uh, uh,
3: you know, you know, you were talking about the, you know, the wheat growing and everything. Uh, tell us what uh, Marcus Kenyon his his role was. A very key in all of this. And did he have anything to do, like with the contracts for the weed yes, and some Marcus of the other Kagan,
4: Now, if you look at, I'm looking at it right now, the contract. There are there are seven names of the senior representatives of that contract. John Butterfield at top, William B. Dinsmore second, William Fargo second, and M.L. Kenyon's fifth on the list. The only one of those uh, uh, directors that had any staging experience was Kenyon. He owned stage lines in Rome, New York. That's, and, and Butterfield knew him. He was in cahoots with him in some of the other businesses. But anyway, he selected him to, to lay out that trail. He was the architect of the Butterfield Trail. And it was so efficient after the Civil War, you know, when he laid it out, that it varied very little. Because it was so efficient, the trail he laid out. Well, He's so buried in Rome, New York.
1: I ten today, and yeah, so much of the interstate system, is, is the southern interstate system anyway, is based on the old stage trails and old rail line railways. You
4: got it. Yeah. Yeah, they, you know these were natural corridors. Yeah, uh, followed by Indian trails, believe it or not. Because in western Arizona, there was a. The trail that connected all, all the Native American villages there—it was like a, a major highway. Even one of uh, Cook's captains mentioned it in his journals. That it connected all the major uh, villages, and this is what became the Mormon Italian Trail, and then in turn became part of the Southern Overland Trail. It was really a, a lot of Indian trails that that blazed the way.
1: Now, when the, we when these trails were being laid out, um, what was it? Not like today with a full Construction crew going out there with shovels and whatnot. Um, How how did they do that? Or was it just the road makes its own? It gets worn down wherever they travel.
4: Well, they you're lay out there something? in Arizona, I've lived there three times. You go out in that desert, it's a natural road everywhere. Yeah, right. <laughs> now, of course, there's obstructions that you have to deal with, like those uh, mesas out there in western Arizona, the trails going up the side. They uh, Now, that, that's uh, a longer subject probably we don't have time for. Leach was out there. He was given a contract in 1858 that helped improve some of them. And uh, there were a number of, of wagons of cells just traveling in the desert would make a road occasionally they would have to uh, knock down the rocks going up the side like the mormon battalion did uh to get up on the mesas but but and roll some rocks aside you know so you have windrows. windrows. Uh, it didn't take much in some places to make a road and in other places it did so now, was, traveling through the sand w- was one of the worst
0: so there was you no know,
4: the immigrants stated that uh, in their journals that in western arizona that 140 miles from gila bend to the colorado river Look like the the uh, trail of a retreating army. There was so much burnt wagons, wrecked wagons, and equipment laying along that trail that they abandoned because that was Hmm. the roughest part of the entire trail.
1: So there was no surveyor out there. uh, No, setting up lines and whatnot. Fremont was
3: probably the first, and that was up north. Yeah, that's
4: a bit of a fallacy. You know, Hmm. in the in the um, uh, uh, Wells Fargo Museum in San Diego, they have. Um, interpretive markers there that actually say they surveyed the trail with surveying equipment, which is absolutely false. (laughs) Now, they wouldn't have time for that. Think about surveying a 2,700-mile trail. Right. (laughs)
3: That's somebody trying to make history a little more glamorous Uh for them.
4: Yeah, what what Kenyon Kenyon, Kenyon. did is the trail zigzagging through the southern Overland Corridor and uh, combined them into one coherent trail that became the Butterfield Trail, which, by the way, is now in the Senate after 10 years and is about to be declared a National Historic Trail. It's Great. going to be a big deal for Arizona.
3: Long overdue. Well, you know, one of the things, too, is people forget that was a major migratory trail. Uh, yeah. At the same time, people were doing the Oregon Trail and the Santa Fe well, Trail, yeah. Yeah. They were, and it was a lot of people. And there were cattle drives on that trail before yeah. the Texas cattle. Drives. And
4: they, oh, they were even more. driving goats and sheep and <laughs> lots yeah, of things. Yeah. Now, you so, made a good point there. The Central Overland Trail, the other trail as I call it, they had uh, uh, about six times or five times as many as immigrants on that trail. The Southern Overland Trail, as far as we know, had about 60,000 immigrants on that trail going to God. California.
6: Wow.
1: <laughs> That's a ton good of people.
6: To fill
3: bill. up the Super Bowl.
1: Boy, oh boy.
3: <laughs> hey,
2: Gerald. Gerald.
1: Yes.
2: Quick question for you. Are sure. you familiar with uh the little Abner's restaurant here in Tucson? <laughs>
4: no, I'm not. No, <laughs> no I don't. okay.
2: Okay, because they claim to be a stage stop. Yes, they
4: do. Yeah. Oh boy, oh boy! You know, I, you know who Marshall Trimble is. I'm sure you do. Yeah, the I know. I know
2: him. Yeah.
4: Official I had a good discussion with him about. We have laughs about this. There, I get this all the time. There are hundreds of stations all over Arizona. No, there isn't. There, uh, they just do not exist. These were crude adobe structures. Some were just poles stuck in the ground. None exist.
3: Well, what wasn't there a lot of just like these little spur lines? Because I know like up at San Patricio, at Patric- uh, Picacho Peak, there was an SP uh, stage line that ran between there and Florence mm. and into other points. But that wasn't Wells Fargo; it was just a private or company. Or
4: Butterfield. Yeah, there were no Wells Fargo lines in there. Now, after the Civil War, they, you know, the the Old West exploded. There were trunk lines everywhere. So, so that's basically what you're talking about.
3: Yeah, it was 79, I mean, so I know it was what. There was well one past.
4: single trail across southern Arizona, and that was the Butterfield Trail. Period.
3: Period. Hmm. This is awesome
1: stuff. Fascinating information, fascinating awesome. history. What have you got coming up, Charles? Yeah.
4: Well, right now I'm sitting here in my cave. You know what the situation is, don't you? Yeah. Wait for my shots. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, I'm 81 now. I can still get around. Uh, I'm anxious to get back. I go to Arizona every year for three months, and uh, I'm doing some stuff with Archaeology Southwest, Dr. Aaron Wright, et cetera, the new national monument out there. He wants me to walk a section of the trail. I never stop. I go out there, and I sit along that trail, and I'm constantly walking it, researching. You know, there's artifacts out there, yet, and they've got to be left in place. Yeah, of course. i got to yeah. say that. Yes. Because yeah. I'm studying along with other people, and they tell us a story. Do not touch those artifacts.
3: Well, Gerald, you have an open invitation when you're, when you're in Tucson to
1: come down here and join us. Yeah, for sure. you bet I will. Or we'll go out on the trail with you.
4: In western Arizona... Some of the most spectacular sections of the the trail that's preserved are in western Arizona and all 2,700 miles. If you're standing there, you'll be looking over your shoulder for a wagon train to run you over.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, in the time we got left, which isn't very much, what can you tell us about Stephen Augustus, the man who designed the celery wagon? And you've got about a minute. The
1: who, what, where?
3: (laughs) Uh, just just te- just tell us whatever you want to tell us or it's your it's your uh 45 43 seconds Well, <laughs> right.
4: uh, okay for, for anybody to want to see the most spectacular some history all in a compact area with about five miles you start at painted rocks it's a national yes. historic
3: site White Stallion.
4: Site, just, uh, west of gila bend and then for the next five miles up onto sentinel Plain. My God, the, 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 you have the Oatman Massacre site. You've got uh, uh, William Four who uh, uh, built a stage station in Oatman Flat in 1869. Of course, it's all gone it's plowed fields now. You get up on that Sentinel Plane, and that trail is so perfectly preserved. It's just like 1858.
1: Gerald, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we really appreciate it. Gerald T. Anhart is in Syracuse. Foremost authority on the uh, southern route of the Butterfield Strait stage lines. stage, and uh, thank you so much for being with us. This has been great, man. This is a And pleasure. myth
2: a dispeller, it was a pleasure. You're a myth. You're a myth dispeller.
1: Exactly. <laughs> Say that again, myth <laughs> we, we dispeller. We certainly appreciate. Bunker, you aliens. opened up the bar already. <laughs> yeah, you did. <laughs> uh, next time we meet on Emil Franzi's Voices of the West, it'll be the 13th of February, the next day. Is Arizona Statehood Day. Yes, it is. And we're going to be talking about statehood. Oh, we are. Yes, we are. Special guest for that. Special guest for that. So that's it for this edition of Abel Franzi's Voices of the West. 82, 81, 80 So Song, everybody.
0: Thanks for listening to Abel
1: Franzi's Voices of the
2: West.